I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today I'm joined by Chef Asha Gomez, cookbook author and owner of The Third Space in Atlanta. Hi, Asha. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Could you please introduce yourself and take as long as you would like to listeners who may not know who you are? My name is Asha Gomez. I'm a chef and author, a mom to a 16-year-old. That's pretty much my life in a nutshell. Well, I think there's a lot more to your life than just that. <laughs> but um, where did you grow up? So I was born in Kerala, India, the southern tip of India. I was raised between Kerala, Mumbai, and a state called Gujarat. A lot of it was in Kerala. But it was between those two states, which are so drastically different from each other. So I really got a really nice rounded view of India and Indian culture and cuisine because through that lens of just living in these amazing spaces. And when you like close your eyes and think about the first image of food that comes to your mind, what is that? That would be my grandma's house in our homestead we have this compound that we live in the compound is called carmel compound it's my grandma's name and my mom has three sisters and they all have homes inside that compound in the middle of the property is a beautiful garden we live right on the beach so if you open up the compound you're on the beach my most vivid memories of food would be mornings when the church bells toll i come from a very christian community And you would hear the fishermen pulling in the nets in the morning. And the nets were so heavy, so they would chant when they pulled that in. And going to the beach and just seeing, you know, just boatloads of seafood that came in to the shores that morning. It's probably my first memory, vivid memory of what food was, um, connection to food, because I think that fishing community was so connected to the sea, you know, it's like, You live by the sea, you die by the sea. And it was just a really beautiful way to grow up. So the sea must be like one of your happy places then. It is. I love, I love the beach. Love it. Uh, I do love the mountains too. It might be because I'm here in Georgia and (laughs) you're you're very much a Southern girl. Yeah. Now the mountains too. I do like cooler weather climate. So I don't know if I would be able to live in Kerala in the summertime there. It's too hot. <laughs> so it's like super hot beach. Like- it is. It's humid. It's, you know, it's almost oppressive, the heat. In the evenings, it's beautiful, but morning times are pretty rough. The humidity, I'm sure, can yes. be choking. Yeah. Like, I, I take like 10 bats when I'm in Kerala. I take like three, like one every hour. Was there someone in your life that, that stoked that appreciation for food or for cooking? You know, yes, it's my mom. My, so my mom was, uh, she was a housewife. My dad was a civil engineer for a German company and worked mostly in Europe. And so he would come, he wasn't home much. You know, he would come every three, four months. We'd get him for a couple of weeks and then he'd be gone. But when he did come to India, he did have an outpost of his offices in India as well. And so my mom would have to entertain people that came, his his colleagues that came from Europe. And so she really honed into that skill. She would read 
magazines and cookbooks. And she was just an entertainer. And she literally put on a show every single time. The salad platters would be so beautiful. She learned how to carve fruit. And it's just, you know, she loved it. And so her joy of entertaining, I think, really resonated with me. And I love, there isn't a Sunday where my friends aren't over at my house having Sunday supper. So yeah, you do put huge spreads on social sometimes. I'm like, oh my God, you know, but not just Indian food. Sometimes it's like Italian, you know, I mean, like. Last night was spaghetti and meatballs and yeah, garlic bread and a nice salad. And my friend Chris made like a berry pie. So yes, yes. So it definitely comes from Hazel. Hazel loved to entertain and she cooked all kinds of foods because my, my mom's sister lived in Malaysia, was married to a gentleman in Malaysia. And so she learned all this amazing Malaysian cuisine. So she would make noodles and I'll never forget this one dish she used to make. I still have to one of these days. She would take peppers and she would make paste out of fresh fish and stuff the peppers with the fresh fish and make it in this soy sauce. It was just so delicious. So like, when did you start cooking? I started cooking rather young. You know, my father passed away when I was very young. It was a very untimely death. He had a cardiac arrest. I was 15. He had just moved to the U.S. And mom, who had kind of led this really kind of amazing life, you know, now was stuck with, not stuck, you know, now she was responsible for four kids that were, you know, my brothers were all in college. I was about to go to college and she had to buck up and start decide, you know, what is she going to do to help make a living to make sure that we were all going to be okay. And she started a catering service in New York. And she catered for like the Malayali community, the Kerala community. In New York, you said? Yes, in New York. So when did you move there? It was 11th grade. So it was 1687, 1987. We came to the U.S. for the first time in 1983, went back. And I would come every year because my dad wanted to make sure my green card was intact. My brothers were in Michigan State in college. And in 1987, we moved here permanently after my father passed away because my mom didn't want us to be all in different parts of the world at that time. But she started catering. And so I didn't have a choice but to start cooking with her because I was literally the person who did all the dishes and helped her with the prep. And, you know, so kind of from a very early age, I was kind of it was forced on me at the time. I didn't enjoy it. (laughs) So I remember (laughs) never thinking that that was going to be my life. That was not what I wanted to do. And as you know, I kind of fell upon it um, about a a little over a decade ago. And, you know, it's been, the industry has been very kind to me. I'm very fortunate. Yeah. When I met you, it was through our mutual friend, Bill Addison, who is the previous guest. Um, And at the time, please correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you were working at that wellness spa next to Star Provisions at the time. Not in the culinary space at all, except as a home cook. Yes, I owned this Ayurvedic spa right next to Star Provisions. And a huge part of Ayurveda is, you know, that you touch all the senses. And so I actually built a kitchen in there. And every treatment ended with the meal that I had cooked. So it's kind of the hidden Indian restaurant. You had to get a facial massage to eat my food. (laughs) You had, to know, you had to know about it. Exactly. Uh, yes. And then in 2008, I was literally an ultra luxury good. And people had just stopped spending money at that time and the economy crashed. And so I had to cut my bleeding. We went from 90% occupancy overnight to 20. And Crazy. I, yeah, I just adopted Ethan at the time. So I said, okay, I could be a mommy for a little bit. But 
what ended up happening is people were asking where they could eat my food. And I was like, well, don't you want to know where I'm opening the spa? (laughs) (laughs) You know, everybody kept saying, well, but yeah, but where, you know, when are you going to do your food? And so that's how I started the supper club. And then the supper club evolved into a brick and mortar, which was cardamom hill. And the accolades were fast and furious. (laughs) And I don't think I was ready for it. Honestly, I had no idea what the food world looked like. I had no idea the rigor of what it takes to run a restaurant. I had no idea that I wouldn't sleep for four years because I was so stressed about finances. And that every two weeks I would wake up in this cold sweat because I had to write $30,000 in payroll checks, but I couldn't write myself a check. It was brutal. So, you know, from the outside looking in, you're like, oh, my God, you're getting all these accolades and you have a James Beard nod. And, and it was actually the worst t- four years that I've ever had in any career that I've ever been in. I'm 51 today. And I knew that. And people forced me like my PR team was like, you can't close down Cardamom Hill and not have another brick and mortar. You're not going to be relevant. And so the reason I opened Spice to Table was because I was told that that was the only way you can be relevant in the food world. And honestly, the restaurant business was just not for me. I'm not cut out for that kind of rigor. I'm not cut out for that kind of dedication that it takes to run a restaurant business. My hat's off to my friends who do it day in and day out. And at the end of the day, there's not really much of a financial (laughs) profitability to look at, you know? So I knew I had to do something different. And I'm at third space. This is my eighth year now going into third space. And it's the happiest I've ever been. Closing my life. I get to dictate my own hours. I'm not sitting, looking at the door, wondering who's going to walk in today. You know, is my bottom line going to be met? Everything is pre-booked. Everything is paid for ahead of time. I have no wastage when it comes to food. Uh, I know exactly who's sitting at my table. It's an intimate experience. And I literally feel like it was, it's like watching my mom when she entertained all those people that came into our home all those decades ago. I feel like I do that every week here at Third Space. Every group that I have is so special. And, and the joy here, and I'm able to be a mom, which is very important to me. I, I enjoy being a mother to Ethan. And it was so important for me that the few years that I had him in my home, that I was able to focus on him and give him what I think every child needs is attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't able to do that in a restaurant. My kid was sleeping in the kitchen on a, this mattress that we made just so I could see him. You know, he would be sleeping. He was like eight years old at the time. He was like at all your events with like a mini chef's coat, you know? I mean, he likes, I mean, like, but he's always, I think he's an old soul. Ethan is an old soul. Yes. But still you did have to make that choice. You know, I was a cook after culinary school and in San Francisco and I left the industry because it wasn't for me either. It's like, it's brutal. Yeah. I think at least if you're financially compensated properly for the time and effort that you're putting in, you would feel satisfied, right? At the end of the day, if we don't have the stresses of paying our bills, I think for the most part, we could be happy humans if you could pay your bills and, you know, do the things that you want to do, that you you can afford yourself the luxuries that you want to afford yourself. And at 11% profit margin, when you're running a small business, it's 
really not. And, you know, in this model, and I want I want to talk about this model more. Yeah, I want to know what what exactly like for people that don't know what the third space offers to yeah. customers. Can you explain that? So the third space, I kind of built my dream kitchen. I was very fortunate. I partnered with this company in, you know, a German company called Mila, who outfitted my entire establishment. And I had a four-year contract with them. So at the time when I closed my restaurants, I didn't really have $200,000 just sitting around because it kind of emptied my savings out (laughs) to keep cardamom hill afloat. And so it was really nice to have this partnership with this company that came in and literally outfitted my space at the time for about $150,000 worth of equipment because they didn't have a showroom in Atlanta at the time. And they wanted to use this space to train their staff, which they would once every four months. It was just a win-win situation for everybody. And I had a little bit of money I invested to build it out. So the idea for it was that it feel like my home kitchen. So none of the equipment here is actually commercial equipment. It's Mm -hmm. all residential, which for code reasons with the city, I had to outfit to make, you know, for fire regulations, I had Mm -hmm. to outfit to make it up to code. But the idea is that I cook when I want to and not because I have to. I probably do about one or two dinners every um, week. I see two and these are the private dinners, all private dinners. I open mm-hmm. to the public occasionally since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I have not. It's usually 10 people minimum, 24 people maximum in the space. And it's just lovely because I get to interact with my clients. It's an open kitchen. I sit and I plan a menu out with them. Most of the time, most of them want to do it family style. So I make copious amounts of food and the food just keeps coming. Um, It's just a really lovely environment. And I don't have the rigor of a restaurant. When it's 20 people, honestly, I can cook by myself. I need one other person to help me. So my labor cost is little to none. My overheads are, (laughs) they're so basic here, right? And so my profit margins are anywhere from 70 to 80%. Wow. And this is why I feel that more people who want to stay in the industry this, there's a way you can do it because the licensing for this place, I have the same license as Alon's Bakery or Star Provisions. So I have a service license. That's, that's not from the city of Atlanta, but the state of Georgia. And I think I, if I had known all these things before I had in, entered the industry, you know, I would have probably done things differently. But I also feel that Cardamom Hill was definitely a stepping stone I probably wouldn't be able to be successful in this environment if I didn't have the notoriety that I got from Cardamom Hill. So it was all necessary, I guess. It was it was a necessary journey. But I feel like you are exceptionally, I guess, flexible, if the word is there, that you have been able to like regain your footing over and over and over again, like given, the, you know, just yes. the economy and the struggle of having that restaurant. And even, you know, as a mom, I, I feel like, as a mom myself, as you know, I have a nine-year-old, it's, it's like hard to balance. And you seem to have found a model that not only works for you financially, but also emotionally. Why is that so important? Yeah, I want to be happy. I don't think I, I lost my joy of cooking at Cardamom Hill mm. because I was so stressed from a financial perspective that there was no way to find joy, even in the little moments, because it was constantly, I have to pay my staff. I have to, the responsibility of so many people fall on your shoulder and you want to always be able to do the right thing. And the right thing isn't always easy to do. <laughs> so I needed to be able to be happy. 
And I know that when I'm happy, my food is a reflection of that happiness. My life is a reflection of that happiness. My child is a reflection of that happiness. And that is important to me. It's important to me that my son grew up in an environment where he sees that I am happy and that I can feel fulfilled at work and still be happy. <laughs> Those are important things to me. And I want that for him. I want him to walk into a world where rigor and stress are not the only way to make a living. And that there is an environment that you can, if you don't find an environment that works for you, then create an environment, have the courage to create an environment that makes sense for you so that you can be happy. Do you ever marvel at the fact that you were able to like ascend so quickly? Like, I mean, from a healer, I mean, you are a healer to me, like with your food. Like I remember when I was pregnant and after my daughter was born, all I wanted was like your okra with the curry leaves and yogurt. <laughs> like, I'd be, like that's all I craved. I don't know what it was. It just made me feel like very good, you know, but oh yeah. What's it called again? I always forgot. It's um, um, okra pachuri. Pachuri. P-A-C-A-D-I. Yes. That I love. But when you used to have those dinners, it felt very you. And like you're saying, now you're back to cooking and it feels very you. Do you think this is the place that you're supposed to be? Is, is this where you want to stay? Like, do you have any aspirations beyond this at this point? No, I don't. <laughs> um, I love that. No, it's good to find where you need to be. No, um, I can see myself here for another decade. I make a comfortable living. I'm able to afford the lifestyle that I want to for myself and my child. I want to continue writing books, which I, my first book that I wrote, I, I didn't quite understand the process. And thank you, Martha, <laughs> for being the rock I needed her to be, to carry me through that process. But the second book was just so joyful for me because it's the way I cook in my kitchen today. You know, you as an immigrant chef, you kind of get typecast into the only recipes you want to ask me about are Indian recipes. And meanwhile, I have now left my ancestral kitchen 35 plus years. I've lived in the U.S., I've traveled across the world. And yet for some reason, I'm expected to cook only the food of my ancestral kitchen. And so for me, writing I Cook in Color was kind of letting people know that, you know, how I cook is really, I bring the global world from my travels, from all the kitchens that I've been fortunate enough to eat in. And it's a global influence in my kitchen today. So it was really a joy writing that second book. Like the sticky toffee pudding I wrote about for the AJC, where you had infused like your own, you know, flavors, or like you said, the, the Italian feasts that you're making <laughs> at the third space. Do you think that the cookbooks are like where you are expressing your creativity the most or is it still in your cooking? I mean, like, have they helped you regain that love of cooking? No, I think that space helped me regain that love of cooking. Um, it's just an environment. I have never one day walked into this place and my heart just like flutters with joy to be in this space. It has given me so much and it is constantly evolving from what it started to what it is today. It's forever evolving. And I'm able to do so much. I'm able to write those cookbooks in this space. I think the writing of the cookbooks for me is kind of, yeah, I guess it is a creative process, isn't it, Jennifer? It is a creative process. To well, I mean, be it's like documenting that. your culinary yeah. history, right? Mm -hmm. It is. It's a, such a fascinating question. Thank you for that. I'll be thinking about it quite a bit. Yeah, I do. It is a creative outlet. Absolutely.
Because if I were to go down and just look at how I cook, like I see the Southern influences, I see the Mexican, I see the Jewish, you know, and and when you go back and you reexamine the dishes that have become just part of your as a chef or as a home cook, it's very interesting because probably you have a bit of New York in there, right? Too. I do. Um, yeah. Yes. The second book has the second book is really the book I wanted to write always because mm-hmm. it's the way I cook. I think my first cookbook, My Two Sap, was the book that people expected me to write. <laughs> and it's such a lovely book and it told such a beautiful story. But the way I cook in my kitchen today really is I cook in color. In the future, though, I would love to. It's interesting. I would love to go back to Kerala and document Kerala cuisine with a more modern flair for the younger generation so that the cuisine doesn't just die off. And I recently actually reached out to Kerala Tourism that I have a really great relationship with. I was like, find me a book agent in India. (laughs) (laughs) Well, certainly there's young. I mean, when I was in, when I would travel to India probably 10 years ago, I mean, there was so much with modern restaurants and in Mumbai, like modern chai. So there must be something going on in Kerala that's modern that you can grasp. Yeah, yeah. But I Um, would love to write about it. I don't know. I feel the want and the need to. I haven't really been fully able to explore that. And so it would be an it would be a journey for me as well. What was it like to go to Kerala with the New York Times? It was so exhilarating to be able to showcase that region of the world. It was just it was joyful. You know, when you read articles of India in the past, it's always you, you're shown the poverty, <laughs> you're shown these these images of India that aren't very colorful. And the only thing I remember telling Kim was, I really just want you to focus and highlight the beauty of this region that I grew up in. And, and she, she was really tremendous with it. And she caught me at these moments. I remember we were in the Cardamom Hills up in Munnar, uh, up in the mountains, and I took a moment and walked away and I just was sitting by myself and she caught a glimpse of me from the corner of my (laughs) eye and knew I was having a moment because I shoved the cameras away from me. And she came running and she goes, oh no, this is my moment. And she sat (laughs) next to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she starts the article off by writing about that moment. And for me, it was just so amazing to stand on that land and feel my ancestors and, you know, just revel in this amazing culture that I was fortunate enough to come from. So you went back, right? I went back right before the pandemic. I went back with David Chang mm-hmm. because I had been part of Ugly Delicious. You know, I always say no to TV shows. I love watching them. I've always just traditionally said no to television. It's just not a genre I wish to be in. But when Chang called, I was like, I don't care what he wants me to do. <laughs> <laughs> So when he came here for the fried chicken, we built a little connection. And then when he was doing the second series, he reached out to me and he said, hey, you want to meet me in New York? I'm doing an episode on curry. And so we met at my mentor, Floyd Cardoso's restaurant with Chef and David. And we did a little uh, round table talk about curry and the influence of curry. And David says, you know, I always see you make your mom's fish curry on social media. And wouldn't it be amazing to go to India and make your mom's fish curry? And so I was like, yeah, it would be amazing. Long story short, 
at the end of the taping, the producers walked up to me and she goes, they said, well, can we go to India in three weeks? I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And we went to India in three weeks. (laughs) So it was amazing. Um, I got to show David the spice trade that happened there, the spice markets. And, you know, I think it was a special experience for him too. And you guys have a friendship. How did that happen? Like, how did you guys Um, meet? I met him here for Ugly Delicious. He came to Third Space and sat and ate raw chicken at my table. <laughs> he tasted the raw marinated chicken. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I might have done it for me. I was like, okay, I think I could be friends with this guy. <laughs> That's right. Oh, like he was questioning <laughs> right? the, uh, the, the battering method or something like that. I think I remember you're like, no, 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 no. Trust me, trust me. Yes. No. Um, and then we've just, you know, which is I've just enjoyed watching him through his journey with his son. And it's really special to see that. Now she's pregnant again. Yeah. You know, when he starts saying Grace wants that, you know, yeah. like Grace wants that she's pregnant. Oh my God, um, baby boy. Oh, I he can't. Doesn't he just light up your feet? I can't. I'm like, very adorable. Like, oh my gosh. I'm not even a baby person, even though right. my mom, I'm not like a baby person, but that is a cute baby. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. This is my interview with Asha Gomez. But speaking of your fish curry and your mom, you have a lot of her cooking utensils. Like I remember oh, your fish curry was the first thing I ever ate. I ate it in your home for a birthday party before you even started the separate yeah. books. I can claim I know you when, knew you when, but it was really, I had never honestly had fish curry, an Indian fish curry until you made it for me. And it was really, I just remember the color. I remember like the chili floating in it. I mean, it was, it was, yeah. uh, there was like a whole chili. No, am I misremembering? Yes. Okay, okay, good, good. Did you finish with the tadka, like a thaliki on top, tempo mm-hmm. oil with mustard seeds, um, garlic slivers, and whole dried red chilies that you spice on top of the fish curry. This was your mom's recipe, no? Yes. Yes, it is my mom's recipe. I've and never- you have her mortar and pestle, spice tin, I all the teapots. Yeah. So the teapots all broke so sad it's a sad story but something good so i had all my teapots this is i had the teapots during this the neem tree spa days because everybody that came you know we did a tea ceremony and all the teapots were placed on this one big tray in the kitchen and one of the employees accidentally flipped it over and every last teapot broke into pieces and they were so afraid to come tell me and i remember i heard this noise and came running into the kitchen and i just stood there <laughs> like <laughs> And I was, and nobody said anything. It was like just the silence for a few moments. And then I remember I sat down and I gathered all the pieces and I took it out into the garden in third space. And I like planted all the pieces of teapots in this little spot. So as long as I had neem tree small, I had that <laughs> garden on this <laughs> But I do still have the utensils that she cooked in and her modern pestle, which Ethan broke the pestle the other day. And I just, I don't, I'm not attached to things. I'm really not, I'm not that human, but I was 10 minutes before service for a dinner. Guests were walking in. I was standing by the ovens and I literally just slid down. Mm. I just, and I just sat there and I felt so terrible for my child because he was just standing there like, and I just started sobbing. I had to collect myself in five minutes, came back. And my friend Aaron came over the other day and he saw these two broken pieces sitting there. And he said, can I take those? I'll bring them back to you. 
I knew he was trying to do, try and do something with it. Long story short, he had someone inserted a metal pole inside. Anyway, it's back. Oh, that's it's so nice. It's hard. <laughs> because yeah. you crack your spices, like you I grind do. your spices, like a la minute, if, it, yes. if you will. Yes, but yes. I heard that there's no way you could just grow it. So he actually had a metal piece installed inside of it so that it's very special. So it's functional again. Oh, yes. I, I mean, it's the only, I don't know why I'm so attached to that motor pestle. I have bigger ones and it's a small stone one, but it's just so perfect. And I've been using it now for 30 years. So especially for chai, I don't know how to <laughs> grind my spices in anything else. Your so. chai was the first homemade chai I've ever had. And it blew my mind. I mean, I, I drank way too much. And then I was like, I couldn't sleep that night because it was so good. I think chai is an experience. Making the chai is an experience. You know, savoring it with someone is an experience. It's it's a special drink. The I've seen you say that you do it every morning and that it's a ritual it, for you. Yes. And now it's not in the mornings anymore. Ethan and I do it like around three, four in the afternoon. Yeah. Because he's like school in the morning and, you know, he likes to be a part of it. That's the only thing the kid actually likes to do. But like cook something or make something. He'll make them some <laughs> eggs. But everybody always thinks that Ethan might really be into cooking because he's around it so much. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really care for it. I mean, he'll, he's self-sufficient in the sense that if you gave him a piece of steak, he probably knows how to cook it and he'll make himself some eggs. But that's the extent of it. The other day, oh, the other day he shocked me because I was uh, taking my dogs to the groomers and I was walking out the door and I just said, you know, there's a whole bird in the in the fridge. I'm just saying. And I walked mm-hmm. out the door. I came back and he had made the most delicious. He looked up a recipe. I think it was Ina Garden's recipe. And he made a rose bird. And it was like, it was a fence. It had that beautiful brown skin. I was like, oh my God. He basted it with butter. And so I'm thinking that he's picking up stuff that he probably... <laughs> He's a utilitarian cook when there needs to be food. I mean, he'll, he'll learn, he'll learn. He's been around it too much, you know, first like real meal he made for me and it was actually delicious. So like with Ethan, like, do you feel like food was a big part of your relationship? Oh my gosh. Yes. It was so much of our relationship because I was so immersed in it. He didn't have a choice, but to be around it. But he, he he loves being in the kitchen with me. So he just has this amazing work ethic. Ethan actually now works at the third space. He does all the behind the scenes stuff on the computer for me. And when I have an event, he literally runs the show. He loves the time that he has with me in the kitchen because he'll do everything around the cooking for me. So he'll be making sure the dishes are clean, the kitchen is clean, because I'm a little OCD about stuff like that. So... Yeah, we have a lot of fun. That's the time and the music is blasting and he's dancing. And I put that up on social media quite a bit because it's like our time together while I'm cooking. And he just has me in stitches sometimes because he's so theatrical, you know, and he's so much full. He's so full of drama. (laughs) (laughs) And all the cooking, I get to watch this kid just, you know. So he's not he's not shying away from it. He just has a different skill set in the kitchen, which is great. It's complimentary, right? Yes, yes. He will clean dishes like I never. That's his dad is very particular about one thing is that mom does the cooking. 
she never has to lift a finger to clean. That's and the rule so, in my house. Yeah. <laughs> so I never, you know, once I'm done eating a meal, I usually just get to sit. Yeah. <laughs> so would you say like cooking is your love language or it, is it one of your love languages? It is actually my love language, whether it's with my family or my friends or my guests that walk in the door. It truly, truly is my love language. I have a friend who says, I'm so glad I don't live in the same state as you. I'd be as big as a boat. <laughs> George, if you're listening. <laughs> um, because, you know, I love feeding people. I do. Why? So much, I just find so much joy in it. So for me, the act of cooking the, the food is not as joyful it is joyful, but what's even more joyful is the act of communing around the table with the food that I have cooked. There's just something special about it, isn't there? I mean, I do think so, around yeah. the table and sharing a meal and, you know, just enjoying that moment. I mean, I was never the kind of mom that was like great about sitting yeah. down on the floor and playing with dolls. I'll be honest, that wasn't <laughs> my thing. But like doing those things and having those experiences in the kitchen has been a good touch point for Zoe. And, and now that she's nine, she's really into prepping. She That's loves so I'm like, hey, you want to prep? You go ahead. You peel those potatoes. I will take it. Such special moments with your kids in the kitchen. I think you can really open the world, the world through your kitchen for your kids. Like you can bring the whole world in and introduce them to another cuisine, another people. And how special is that, right? Well, it's a direct um, route, right? Into yeah. into a into a culture. It's the cuisine is the direct route. Yes. And you said something that you love is the communing around the table, right? So has, I mean, obviously the past years has been crazy because I mean, some of your food, you've done dinners where people sit on the floor and eat off of banana leaves with their hands. I mean, like very interactive and you are a very warm entertainer. What was that like over the past couple of years? It's been amazing. So are you asking what happened to the pandemic? And yeah. Do any dinners. So I pivoted, I pivoted, and I was doing these this to-go model where I actually loved it because I was accessible to my community. And you know, so every Saturday we put up a menu to the whole of last year. Every Saturday we'd put up a menu. By Sunday, it was sold out. And I was probably sending out food for like 60 to 75 people every week. And I was because it was making it in bulk, you know, it was it was so much more affordable. And so I love the aspect of being able to be accessible to my community because it's a little expensive to sit at my table at third space. Um, most of the dinners we do are corporate. And so I actually reveled in it last year because I was able to like touch so many people through food. So it was really special. So it's even like, not even if you're not even there, you felt like you were still communing in a different way. It was. And for some reason, I have the most special guests because, you know, they will send an email, they will send a text because Ethan communicates with every pickup is the communication happens with Ethan because he's dropping it off. And, you know, it was a no touch pickup. And he would get these text messages and he would share it with me. And they were always just so loving and kind and it would just make my heart smile. And are you going to be doing any more? I was looking at your website last night to see yeah. like if you were doing any more of those. The last one I think was like 731. Yes, right? I have been so busy Good. with people booking up dinners that I'm literally 
booked for the next couple of months, I probably won't be able to do the pop-ups anymore. But it was a fantastic year, a whole year of doing it. So if people want to get your food, they need a book at the third space? At the moment, <laughs> unfortunately, at the moment, yes. You know, maybe if I have a free Saturday somewhere, I might, you know, decide to do it. I really do it because it's so joyful to do it. But it's been intensely busy. Yeah, I think everybody's just ready to get out. But you're still nervous because <laughs> it's it's not done yet. It's no, it is not. Yet. And so we right now for all the dinners that we do, we are always fully masked, even though we're fully vaccinated. Our guest, the way we serve the food is only family style now so that we don't have to have too much contact on the table. I guess don't mind. They love it. I'm still here. I'm just not too close to the tables. Yeah. I mean, has the pandemic changed food for you or eating in restaurants? Uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't eat out for that entire year. It's only very recently. My first meal out was with Steven and then I went to Bach and had a meal. But now, you know, we have started slowly going back to Buford Highway, but we're still doing takeout. I'm still mm-hmm. a little nervous. Like we'll go to La Pastosita or this place that Ethan loves the barbacoa at. We'll always just pick it up for lunch. I was in Kimball House this week. I was so happy to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and down a couple of cocktails. They have this new cocktail on the menu called Tiger's Tail. It was dangerous. I heard Mercedes uh, Mercedes O'Brien is over there now. She is yeah, from yeah. Revival, Gun Show, everything. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was such a fun night. It's always a good time at Kimball House. I do love Watchmen's too, though. It's like up the block. So I've heard that they're doing a good job with safety at Kimball. But again, I've eaten inside of two restaurants in the past two years. Yeah. And that was like for a very brief time. I did go to Lucian from Katie and Jordan, which was beautiful. But then, you know, I have a nine-year-old who's unvaccinated. So yeah. I still, even though I'm vaccinated, really? I still have to be careful with her until she's vaccinated. But it's just interesting because like, I always felt like your food and your hospitality were so intertwined, but I guess you've found a way to make it work still, you know, in a model that works for you. Yeah, it really does. This model, I don't know. I I would do an open house for chefs who want, who want to figure out how to do this because I honestly think that for, you know, if you don't have deep pockets to run like a restaurant, it's very difficult. It, it is such a rigorous lifestyle, but I think there is an alternate to that. And I think this model may be that alternate, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you if you want to have balanced life of family and being able to be financially sustainable, this kind of model within our industry, I'm doing it for eight years and I'm doing it successfully. It's working. And so every time I meet chefs that are kind of struggling with, you know, where they want to go, I'm always saying, come, come look at this space. Whatever I can do to help guide you in this direction, it works. It's a good model. And lately I've been, for some reason, I have all these young brown girls. Good. (laughs) me, And they're just, you know, so excited to be in the food world. And so I'm really excited about being able to mentor this young generation of brown girls that um, are coming into the industry. I mean, you were like, I mean, at the time when you rose 
to popularity in Atlanta, I mean, it was like all white male chefs with beards. You know, tattoos, you know, which I like to joke with some of those bearded tattoo chefs about. And they're very funny about it. All your time. You know, people always ask. I think everything is about timing and being in the right place at the right time. I just, it was the right place, the right time, the right city. It was a sea of middle aged white men tattooed white men and this brown woman came along and it was something different to write about and i think if you are a good storyteller people connect to your food just a little bit more and i think that is the beauty that i'm seeing now with the younger generation of chefs when it comes to immigrant chefs is that they're so articulate and they tell their stories so beautifully and people are really able the food resonates with people because you have storytellers at the forefront, you know, bringing forth their heritage and their cuisine. And it's really just, it's so exciting to watch these kids. It really is. And you are definitely a role model for them. But something I always did notice about you too, because I mean, I came to all of your spaces and all of your businesses was that you had a lot of black chefs working in your kitchen as well. When a lot of other people had only white supporting staff. As somebody who has spent so much time in the South, like I definitely consider you a Southern gal in many ways, <laughs> Southern India and the Southern United States. But thank but, you um, a lot. <laughs> you're welcome. But do you ever like just marvel at how little representation there is in the Atlanta restaurant community for black chefs? Like it's something I've been talking about with a lot of people on the podcast because it feels wrong. It is wrong. <laughs> Because it is wrong. There really isn't enough. Um, I was so excited. You know, I've I've been like, I literally eat at Staple House like once a week now. I just love what he's doing there. And I literally shed a tear because when I watched it, walked into the kitchen the other day and I saw this young black chef like standing in there. It just made my heart smile. I'm going to get emotional about it because it's so important for people to see that to visually be able to see that, right? It was, so I'm very proud of Ryan. <laughs> no, if you don't see, if you're a black yes. kid who likes to cook in Atlanta and you're like a sophomore in high school and like, and if you, you don't can, see black chefs, yeah. you don't think it's a path, right? You don't. Mm-hmm. So it was really nice to see that person up in front and center and you know, really they have such a wonderful team there it's so beautiful what he's doing even even talking to him he's like uh, he looks so much happier (laughs) he's Mm -hmm. like four days a week you know seven person crew just making the most amazing food that's accessible to the community it's just such a beautiful space i love it i love it love it love it and they have kids they both have two young you know him and his wife kara have two young children and They've found a way to make it work. Something you did mention earlier when you were talking about, oh, you just wish that all of these people would come and look at the model that you're doing because of, you know, the work-life balance. As you probably are aware in Atlanta and the rest of the world, you know, all these restaurants are having a hard time finding help. I mean, a lot of service industries, period, but restaurants is what we're talking about here. And one of the reasons I believe is because of the work-life balance. People don't want to go and be abused by diners. They don't want to be abused by shitty operators. And not making the money that allows you to have a sustainable livelihood, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing that has to change is people have to realize that food is not cheap. It's not supposed to be cheap. And I'm hoping that the masses understand that because if you want the restaurant industry to be successful, people have to understand that food is not cheap. I think therein lies... (laughs) 
the crux of the problem that we face is that people expect food to be cheap. And so if you are someone with a little bit of conscience that wants to serve the you know, source your food properly and serve the right food and have integrity in your kitchen and pay your employees a livable wage. I mean, how are you able to do that if everybody's just looking for cheap food? Especially immigrant food. They want, they especially want immigrant food like Indian, Mexican, Chinese, to be cheap. So sad. I'm hoping. And so that's one of the things that I think happens with third space too, right? Is that I'm hoping that you change the perception of what ethnic food, um, the value of ethnic food is, because it's it's about $150 to sit at our table for a person. And people walk in here and I know that they leave understanding the value of what came to the table. So I love that that is also something that I'm able to instill in my guests that walk in here is that ethnic food should be revered and it should be seen in the same light as my fellow white American chef's foods. Yeah. So, I mean, it's entertainment, education, and getting fed. Yep. <laughs> it's a pretty good, that's a pretty good deal for $150. <laughs> you see a lot about food just by eating, a lot about Southern Indian food just by eating your food, but but other things too, just how to fry a piece of chicken properly, you know, because you just, you really understand the techniques. Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you too long, but, you know, I do want to ask what's coming up for you. Um, I know you're just kind of in your space. Do you have another cookbook? Is there anything you would like to plug any organization you're working with? Anything. So I've been working recently with, I know everybody knows about No Kid Hungry, but the Share Our Strength is something that I've been working with closely. Actually, right before the pandemic, I had gone to India with Mary Sue Milliken and Share Our Strength. And India has the largest run uh, school lunch program in the world government school run program in the world and they have managed to find a way to mass produce food using technology they're fortifying this food and it's all this healthy nutritious yet tasty food to be able to actually it actually helps bring kids to school because Mm. it's tasty and they also have this program where if you have a sibling that's younger and doesn't go to school, the parent can bring the sibling at the time and the sibling can actually eat lunch with the sibling that's in school. Uh, There's no wastage of food because all the food that's left, the kids get to pack it and take it home. So we went because we were kind of, um, Share Our Strength had made an endowment to this one group in India and we had gone to see what it is they were doing with mass production of food when it came to school lunches. And if that was even a possibility in the realm of possibilities here in the U.S., because gosh, our school lunches are just, I don't even know. I don't have a word for it. So, you know, go support that organization because they're doing tremendous work and they're actually making a difference. Um, And I've seen it firsthand. So go help. And if you want to do something when it comes to Haiti or Afghanistan, then CARE is an organization here in Atlanta that is actually doing tremendous, tremendous work right now. And they have specific regions of the world that you can help. So if your heart wants to go do that. And And where can people follow you? Oh yeah. And get vaccinated. People get vaccinated. My poor mom had to wait so long to get her vaccine. And, you know, she's 81. And I just, I just, the privilege of it, just, it just kills me. So please go get vaccinated. So many people that work in the medical field and it's, it is not pretty out there. 
it is not pretty. In Alabama, they don't even have any beds anymore. Mm-mm. Or Tennessee. It's and just, there's most of the ICU beds in, in Georgia are full now, too. And it's I've gotten to the point where I'm not afraid to ask someone if they're vaccinated or not, because I was like, you know, how am I going to be polite about it? And I'm my stylist. Of, I just lost my stylist of 10 years because she doesn't want to get vaccinated. And honestly, I'm not OK with that. I'm not OK with that. I'm not either. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's been a really interesting past two years, like between COVID, masks, Trump, social justice. It has been a very divisive year, but you can clean up your friend list. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you can. And where can people, speaking of friend lists, where can people follow you? Uh, Instagram is probably my best. Um, Facebook as well. But I'm not as active on Facebook. I have like 200,000 followers on Facebook. Holy but, shit. But Instagram. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, Instagram is really where I'm most active and whatever shows up on Instagram will show up on Facebook. And what's your handle on Instagram? It's Asha Gomez. Okay, great. Well, thank yeah. you so much for being here, Asha. It's always lovely to see you. You too. Yeah, and I, I need to get a, I need to get a seat at that table. Maybe I need yeah. to have a corporate event. I'm not a- <laughs> we'll have chai soon. Let me okay, know. I would love that. I would love that. All right. All right. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye bye. That's this week's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you to Asha for joining me. If you want to keep up with me on social media, you can find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. And please don't forget to give me some star love because it helps other people find my podcast. Next Wednesday, I'm joined by Tal Baum. Tal is the owner of Bolinia Alimentari in Pont City Market, as well as Aziza and Falafel Nation on the west side and Reina on the Beltline. She has two new concepts coming out, one of which is Atrium, which will replace the former Reza Cucina space in the Central Food Hall. We spoke about so much, like growing up in Israel, her time studying architecture in Italy, being a mom and a restaurateur, and what it's like to actually be a female restaurateur in a male-dominated industry. Again, we're back on Wednesday, and I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.